This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 409, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with a little trick. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, Daniel Glass here. I want to welcome you back to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. And uh, today I have to say I'm very excited about the content of the podcast for those of you who our regular listeners, the last couple of episodes, uh, we focused on John Bonham, did a real deep dive into uh, the world of John Bonham, understanding his psychology, where he came from, and um, what influenced him. And then the second episode, we really uh, broke down a lot of actual Bonham grooves and um, talked about those in detail. And one of the things that we uh, really focused on was uh, Bonham's influences. So, um, the first episode, you know, we talked a lot about uh, a variety of the things that Bonham had listened to and how that influence is playing and why it's important for us as drummers to understand those influences if we want to play like John Bonham. And uh, one of those influences, uh, no surprise, is the great Gene Krupa. Um, Bonham's setup in many ways mimics Gene Krupa's setup. Uh, some of the uh, licks that he uses and his approach, not only to his performances, but to his soloing, uh, can sort of be traced back to Gene Krupa. And so I thought for this week, why not just go to the source itself? And so this episode, we are focusing on Gene Krupa. And you might, um, you know, a lot of people know some stuff about Gene Krupa. They've um, seen a few clips, they know a couple of little factoids and tidbits. Uh, today we're going to talk to somebody who is who has spent really most of his life being absorbed in, obsessed with, and uh, a, a student of Gene Krupa. And not only that, but uh, he has uh, really become a student of Gene Krupa's gear, um, the famous Slingerland Radio King uh, drum sets. Um, and you know, in so many ways, Krupa was so influential and. We're going to sort of focus on a few of those today uh, in our, our conversation uh, with a gentleman named Brooks Tegler. Uh, Brooks is maybe not that well known in the mainstream drumming community, but uh, in the sort of the world of the vintage uh, drum fan, um, he's really known as just a, a big collector uh, of, you know, Slingerland uh, Radio King drum sets. You'll hear just how many kits and snare drums he has. It's overwhelming. Um, also as a player, he plays in that traditional 1930s style, plays jazz, uh, type gigs around the DC area where he lives. And, um, he's also a writer and has a, a book forthcoming about his lifelong obsession with Gene Krupa and really with a particular focus again on the gear that Krupa used. And I'm excited for the release of this book because I think it's going to be, um, probably the most in-depth work put out about Krupa and particularly again, focusing on the Slingerland Radio King. So if you're into vintage stuff, this is going to be, um, a, a really fantastic new addition to the canon of, uh, literature, you could say, focusing on 
our evolution, uh, which as you know, is a big, uh, is a big part of what I'm about as a drummer. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Brooks Tegler. All right, I'm here with Brooks Tegler on the Daniel Glass Show, and uh, Brooks, it's a real pleasure to have you here, man. Welcome. Happy to be here. Delighted. I had heard your name before I moved out to New York about eight years ago as kind of the man on the East Coast for uh, a lot of different traditional drum styles, and that you were an expert on on history and. Uh, over time, we've gotten connected on Facebook, and uh, I've, I've got the chance to see you play a couple of times, and it and it's it's really uh, it's great to have you here, man. So um, I'm glad we could work this out. Well, I appreciate the fact that you can do these things. Uh, you know, it it makes a big difference. So yeah. ha- happy to be in whatever capacity needed. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. So you know, you're you're sort of known. In, in the world of uh, vintage, the vintage drumming community, I guess, as someone who is very knowledgeable about Gene Krupa. You're writing a book about Gene Krupa, which we'll talk about in a second. But I suppose um, of interest to me and I think of our listeners is, you know, how did you get into Gene Krupa? What caused you sort of to, to dig deep into this one particular artist? And um, how, how did that how is that whole thing unfolded? Um, initially, I, that blame lays squarely at the feet of my late father, also a drummer, also very much devoted to Gene. Um, and basically, I just sort of picked up and ran with that for most of my life. Um, he, he loved Gene. He went to see him many times. Each time he went to see him, he would get Gene to sign the same autograph book each time. And this was an autograph book that included Dave Tuff, uh, a million people, people you only heard about. Um, and Gene would always get a kick out of it, apparently. When Dad would go see him one time, Dad went to see him. Gene signed the autograph book backstage and got involved in a conversation with somebody else with a book under his arm and walked away <laughs> with, with her father standing there going, but, but, uh, and, and literally drove away and then turned around and drove back and handed him his autograph book back. Wow. Uh, that same autograph book went with me, my older brother, my father, and my grandfather when I got to see Gene in person for the one and only time. Uh, and that was in Baltimore. And when was it called the, the Mardi Gras Club? I would. I'm guessing now because it would be late '60s. Um, and of course, I was too young and stupid to actually realize the magnitude of what I was involved in. Um, but it was quite a night. I sat under his nine by thirteen tom the entire night when he was playing. Wow. And can. I can still remember the feeling of him actually once in a while looking down and giving me a huge smile, uh, you know, while he was playing. And he actually announced, announced that night that it was so, so great to see three generations of the same family coming to hear him play. So uh, that was my fate was pretty much sealed at that point. Yeah. So he was familiar with your dad because your dad had seen him on so many occasions. He was uh, he, he knew your dad. Absolutely. Not not to the point where they could hang out and have a beer together, but he certainly, Gene was, 
remarkable with that kind of recall. He could remember people. Yeah. And he could especially remember people who were not just sort of slathering idiots when they came to see him, but people who could actually really relate to him and basically explain clearly to him why they were so devoted to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, he deeply appreciated that kind of recognition. So, we, you know, and we know that there are millions of people to this day who can attest to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, certainly, you know, you, you would agree with this, that Gene's uh, effect on people when he played was was something that was beyond a drummer communicating with other drummers. You know, he, he somehow had this ability to uh, mesmerize generations and, and the entire, you know, audience, whether the person played music or not. Absolutely. Without question, because yeah. he spoke the language, something that I've always considered critically important, carried over like so many of the things that I find important about Gene and carrying over into my approach to playing. He played the song. He was involved in the conversation at the time. Uh, rarely, there were occasions when Gene would have a pretty impressively long solo, uh, you know, a concert in Germany where I guess he was just feeling really good that night and just absolutely roared for, for a time that even surprised me as far as how long it was. Mm. For, the, for the most part, he was an equal participant to anybody on that bandstand and participated in the conversation as it went. Sometimes he'd inject a different idea, sometimes not. Even when he was a band leader, mm -hmm. he's still able to converse with everybody on the bandstand, musically. Yeah. That always impressed Great. So, so there you are, you're a young, impressionable drummer. You're obviously hearing Gene Krupa's music in the household. Uh, and, you know, how does that, did you, uh, how did you get into, because the topic of your book relates to uh, Gene's relationship with Slingerland and the gear that he used over the years. Is that, am I correct in that? For the most part, certainly. It, it is a book somewhat about the man himself. But yes, the primary thrust of the entire book is about his equipment history beginning to end. Fantastic. And it's really sort of, it's a window into my personality. I'm also a World War II historian. Mm. And for me... You can't really understand what gentlemen like the Tuskegee Airmen went through completely unless you can immerse yourself in, in what they wore, you know, what they sat in. I mean, the feeling of sitting in a P-51 cockpit is, to me, unparalleled mm. because you realize what you're, you know, you're there, you're in that place. So having the things at my disposal, having them in my hands, holding a 14 by 26 white and green pearl Radio King bass drum is infinitely more important than drawing a picture of it, looking at a photograph of it, as far as, you know, having a deep historical sense of what was going on. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. And I, I, part of, for me, part of the experience of, of my own research projects and presentations of historical styles of drumming or is that... To really understand what those guys were doing, you have to play the gear that they played because it was different and the way it was positioned was different. The way it responded was different. The way it 
could be set up was different. And so if you want to play more like those guys, you know, then it, and it, it behooves you to experience their experience behind the drum set, uh, you know, wh- whether it's a, a 1920s thing or a Gene Krupa in the 30s and 40s and 50s or John Bonham in the, you know, in the 70s or whatever. Um, Absolutely. So, so you, you, you obviously then, did you inherit uh, some of your first Slingerland stuff from your dad? Did he already have those, those old drums? Uh, well, the funny thing about that is dad's connection to Gene sort of evolved in the same way his connection to jazz in general evolved. And, and dad's early drum sets were, I think his very first real drum set was a Blue Sparkle Ludwig set. Uh, then he used a few Slingerland sets after that. Uh, but then he went back to Ludwig, and his whole focus, of course, shifted more to Buddy than Gene, mm. and, and also Morello and a few other people. Um, by that time, Dad was meeting these people, talking to these people, hanging out to a certain extent with these folks. So everything kind of typically, as it seemed to do with Gene's life, kind of shifted to what else was going on, always keeping Gene as the root. Mm-hmm. And I think you could read a million accounts by drummers today that say the same. Gene was the root from which their tree grew. Mm. I should write that down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you'll, well, you'll have it here now for posterity, so you can always come back to this. Great point, uh, though. Yeah. Well, I think probably the main thing that people, some realize it about Gene, I'm not sure everyone does, is that Gene was just doing what came naturally to him. And even in the beginning, his detractors would go after all of the wrong stuff because there was very little else for them to criticize. He was a great musician. He was a great listener. He was a great musical thinker. So they couldn't, they couldn't go after him for being some, you know, weekend warrior goofball. So mm-hmm. they had to go after his natural showmanship and say there was something wrong with that. Well, okay, he got a lot of mileage out of that showmanship, and every bit of it was real. It just looked weird, you know. Uh, I can't think of many people in, that maintain that connection where their name is a synonym for the instrument they played. You know, possibly sure. Louis with, but you say Gene Krupa, people think drums. You say drums, people think Gene Krupa. It well, has, it's automatic, you know. Well, and the um, the uh, the widespread um, you know c- capacity to to his popularity, I guess you could say, was so ubiquitous. Um, I, I also don't know if people realize that. I mean, today we think of famous drummers as, you know, being famous to drum to, to other drummers. But I remember when I was a kid, I would go visit my grandmother in Florida. And, you know, I was learning drums in school or starting to play in my first rock bands, you know, whatever. And she would always say, oh, my, here's my grandson. He's a drummer. And the first word out of every person's mouth of her generation was, oh, Gene Krupa. Like that was their association to the drums. Again, whether they were a musician or whether they played or not. So, 
You know, and I also think about when you talk about detractors, you know, I, I think detractors are oftentimes a, a, a sign of success because if someone is so successful, then it's, it's you know, eventually you're going to find people that want to tear them down. And so in a way, it sort of is almost more of a, a testament to Gene's popularity. I completely agree with that, with the exception that Gene did what he did, honestly. Mm. A lot of people have even found that difficult to deal with. Most people respected and admired that. You yeah. know, that what, Gene, that what Gene got, the results he got, were come by quite honestly. He earned that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and of the points that we were making earlier on Facebook about the two blugs and whose idea that was. Uh, in my book, I cover a ton of things that Gene could be credited for being the first at, but isn't for whatever, whatever reason, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, he came by this stuff truthfully. Yeah. He earned it. And he wore it quite well, you know. You know, keeping in mind that this was a guy who was actually making an honest effort to become a priest because that's what his mother wanted. You know, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So back to your back to your story, Brooks. Um, so you 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 started getting some getting the the gear from your father, but then did did you run with that uh, in terms of uh, developing becoming a collector in your own right, or how how did you go about that? Because um, I think a lot of people that wonder about collecting vintage drums, uh, they're not sure you know how to get into it or you know, how it all begins. So, so from somebody who's been doing it for a long time, how did that process develop for you? Well, as far as the beginnings, uh, I used a drum set that my father sort of handed down to me, which was a black, black lacquer Slingerland set. Uh, the next Slingerland drums I owned were not, were probably eight to 10 years later. In between there were, Mostly made in Japan, pearl-made stuff like Lido Supremes and Lafayettes, because that's all I could actually buy. Sure. So it was a you know it was as close as I was going to get to a real Slingerland drum set. When I started collecting, was around the same time that I started my own band, which would have been 1979. In 77 and then 78. I had started to develop a much deeper desire to have the real thing. And billions of collectors out there remember that desire, I'm sure. Mine had to be stuff that I saw Gene using, which, of course, meant white marine pearl radio kings. No brainer. Yep. Then I met Charlie Donnelly. And that was a, a cataclysmic event for me because Charlie was also very much enamored with Gene but mostly he was enamored with the kind of guy Gene was. And I truly believe that much of Charlie's personality was molded because of the model that Gene offered. He was gracious. He was honest. He was a wonderful guy to talk to. And he would just give me stuff. He had snapshots of a gig that he organized for Gene's quartet. He just signed them over to me. He says, here, take these. I know you'd love them. Wow. He would call me. He would call me up and say, "Hey, uh, you know, I got this Radio King White Marine Pearl. You want to buy it?" And I would go, "Charlie, I, of course I'd love to buy it, but I can't pay for that." My first White Marine Pearl Radio Kings came from Charlie. 
Can you, you know, for, for those who don't know who Charlie Donnelly is, can you just explain briefly uh, who he was and or what, what his contribution has been? Charlie probably was one of the first vintage drum dealers. Charlie had a shop in Newington, Connecticut, and I you'd have to ask my friend Eamon Cronin when he started that shop, because Eamon would go there all the time. He lived nearby. But by the time I met Charlie, the shop had been pretty well established, and there just weren't other people doing that. I think I've heard the name Ed Munger thrown around. And, of course, the big shops like Ippolito's and those guys, but they didn't really deal specifically in vintage stuff. Charlie did. And, what, and when, rep- when did you meet him? What, what year or, you know, when, when would you estimate? 78 was the first year that I actually developed a friendship with Charlie. Yeah. I didn't actually meet him in person until 79. Because mm. it's a long trip from D.C. or Baltimore to Newington, Connecticut. And yeah. when you're a broke teenager playing in a blues band, you don't have a lot of dip. <laughs> right. You know, it's it's so interesting, just the general... I mean, today, you know, vintage drums, it's such an industry, so to speak. And what, what amazes me now is that the newest wave of, quote-unquote, vintage collecting is actually old uh, Pearl and Yamaha drums, which, you know, when... When when we were younger was like the old Hondas and Toyotas. They were the the cheap foreign made drums. Yeah. But right. it's, you know if you if you think about uh, the the you know the great heyday of drums. I mean I remember in the late seventies when I was first buying my first drum sets. You could buy an an old Ludwig or an old you know Slingerland or an old Gretsch. Those were just junk to most people. You know, today, you know, like an old Gretsch round badge from the 50s would go for, you know, whatever, $5,000, and you could buy those all day for 100 bucks. So it's interesting in your discussion of Charlie just how they're really, some people had a real eye that this stuff was going to start to have value rather than just be something that was in somebody's basement that they were trying to get rid of, you know, old stuff. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think Charlie was wise enough to see yeah. What was happening with Fender guitars and the Japanese and the Belgians could certainly happen with drums, but to think that it was ever going to get to that level, I think even Charlie knew that was not possible. He yeah. just loved old stuff. Yeah. And it has to be said, some of that influence came from a guy that rumor has it, Charlie worked for when he was much younger, a guy named Bill Mather. Uh-huh. And Bill was intimately related to Gene in the sense that anything Gene did with his drums, Mather was involved early on. Mather was a character. He was British, but he had a shop here in New York that ultimately, I think, came to be Frank's. Huh. And, and he would, excuse me, he would wheel and deal like nobody's business. I've heard the great, wonderful anecdote about Mather having a deal with Zildjian because he wanted to provide his buddies from England who played the cruise ships with better symbols than they could get over there, because they couldn't get Zildjian's. Wow. <laughs> so Mather would, he would sneak up to Quincy, Massachusetts, and grab a bunch of symbols that were unmarked, mm. and that had been left for him, take those back down, go through the, the manifests of all the cruise ships, and match up symbols with what his buddies wanted. So he was always working deals like that. Fascinating. So you you can almost trace this progression uh, of vintage, quote unquote, vintage collecting or trading 
uh, almost to a ground zero kind of a, a, a situation with, with Bill I Mather. believe so. I, I definitely believe, like so many other things, Mather was ground zero for a lot of that. Yeah. And yeah. as you say, you know, a lot of that stuff was garbage to most people. Yeah. And in isn't one of the reasons that when I moved into my house in 92, I moved in with 85 snare drums and 65 sets, all Slingerland. Wow. was because I I was collecting in that same period. Yeah. You know, where somebody goes, want this old drum, give me 10 bucks. So, yeah. <laughs> we, well, lived, we lived through the, probably the best period already. Yeah. I, I, I was not such a collector at, at that time, but, um, but I did start collecting in the early 90s, and even then there were a lot of great deals to be found. And what interested me, because I really got on the road pretty heavily uh, in the early and mid-90s, is that always around Chicago there was so much stuff. And, of course, that makes sense because that's where Ludwig and Slingerland and uh, Rogers uh, and, and some of the other companies um, – you know, even uh, Leedy, which wasn't exactly in Chicago, but the Midwest, you know, with Chicago's Ground Zero is another place where there was a proliferation of these drums. So it makes sense that the Chicago Drum Show uh, is the longest and, and largest and the oldest of the vintage drum shows. They were the first, you know, Rob was Rob Cook uh, was the first one to say, hey, maybe we should have a drum vintage drum show, you know, <laughs> whereas that wasn't even a concept before. Right, absolutely. I mean, that was yeah. something that, that guitar players had been doing for a while. Why sure. not drums? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Great. So, so you tell say again the number because I, I that you blew by that number, but that's quite an impressive number. How many drum sets and how many snare drums? When I moved in here, I had eighty-five snare drums and sixty-five complete sets. Uh, that number fluctuated <laughs> once I was here. And could actually carve a path through the house. My poor little daughter just, you know, she put up with that hard time. But once I actually made pathways, uh, I would add to that. You know, of course, I wasn't going to stop collecting if I could get great deals. Yeah. Uh, so, who knows? I honestly don't know what the ultimate number is. Um, but after a while, it was, you know, here I am struggling to make a mortgage payment. It's time to pare this collection down. Sure. That's a, that's a process that continues to this day. <laughs> I think, um, I think uh, uh, John Aldridge, you know, who, who worked with me on my uh, Traps DVD and was, and is obviously, he wrote, you know, the book on vintage drums was, was an early collector as well. He told me a story about, and I don't know if you've, if you've heard this story from him. He, he had at one time, I think around 200 Radio King uh, snare drums and he finally sold them all except for the one that he considers to be the perfect Radio King snare. <laughs> so, you know, there you go. Um, well, I know, I know John still has a bunch of Radio Kings because he sent me pictures. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. he, he does. But I, I, I think, you know, it was just, it was an, a, a great anecdote, uh, you know. I so, know. I've known John a very long time. Yeah. And he's a wonderful Long before he even started doing engraving stuff. Yeah. Um, actually, my band did a tour in 87. John actually provided me with a set of drums for a particular gig, which was great. Um, and by that time, he had started, I guess, the white paper version of Not So Modern Drummer. Yeah. So uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. 
and you know, no baloney kind of nuts and bolts guy that you know has done an awful lot for the vintage drum world over the years. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so let's. At what point did you sort of say, "Well, gosh, I have all this knowledge and and uh, all this memorabilia and and all these drums." You know, why don't I put all this together and into a book? And and how did you know what was the vision for that? Um, the because I saw the need for it. I saw a lot of misinformation. I saw a lot of inaccuracy. I still do. I see. I saw a lot of mythology being palmed off as truth, and I I just decided it had to. I had to do something about it. You know. Um, and the main issue was proof of what I, my claims were. Mm. And the proof there, the proof is there in a, just a ponderous amount of photographs of Gene with his drums. And, you know, I've been very lucky with a lot of the research that I've done because I've, ma- I've managed to ferret out things that just instantaneously blow a lot of mythology right out the door. Can can you name maybe name one or two of these myths that have sort of become conventional wisdom that in fact in your research you've found are, you know, baloney as you would say. Well, the first one of course we talked about earlier which was this classic uh fable that William Ludwig created about how Gene got connected to Slingerland. Because I guess he figured that nobody was going to actually do the research. And find out that this story about Gene's father calling up Slingerland because being blown off by Ludwig or whatever it is, I forget the details. Gene's father was supposed to have been the one that ultimately gave up on Ludwig and switched to Slingerland for finding Gene a set of drums. Right. The tricky bit there is the fact that Gene really wasn't that interested in drums until he was about 11 or 12. Gene... (laughs) Gene's father died when Gene was seven years old. So it must have been a pretty miraculous phone call. (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, wow, when you get a call from a dead guy asking to set up a set of drums for your kid. I mean, it doesn't take a, you know, a Rhodes Scholar to figure out that the whole thing is baloney. Right. Well, and I think just to add a little more um, perspective, maybe for those that, that, aren't that familiar with this time period that, you know, when Gene emerged essentially with Benny Goodman as the most popular, became the most popular drummer in the world, established a new position for drummers. Then with him came Slingerland establishing dominance as the most popular and sort of desirable drum company, maybe similar, somewhat similar to what happened 30 years later with what uh, Ringo did for Ludwig. Um, There definitely are corollaries there, but I am not of the opinion that they happened because of Benny's fame, Mm. because Benny, of course, was not famous when that started. Mm. Gene started Benny at the end of 1934. I believe it was actually the wisdom and the business acumen of Heenan Slingerland that approached Gene just like Avidus Zildjian, because they pronounce it Avidus, don't you know, not mm-hmm. Avidus. Right. Um, it was those guys, the business guys, that said, hmm, there's something about this kid we might want to lock on to because he might be able to make us a bunch of dough. In both interest, in, instances, it was absolutely correct. 
So, sure, he was playing Slingerland drums. Who knows what his first drum set is? Gene himself doesn't really remember that that clearly. Mm. Uh, so, and he, he actually, he, he, he misquotes himself more than once. Uh, was it 18 bucks? Was it 16 bucks? I believe that his connection with Slingerland came actually shortly before he joined Benny. Mm, interesting. Well, I think it, it might be safe to say that uh, certainly, uh, you know, Krupa was a big part of the reason that Benny Goodman uh, became seen as as the first king of swing, really, because he... he Undoubtedly. Yeah, and, and certainly the connection with Slingerland, uh, you know, goes hand in hand with all of that. But that's a really interesting well, point that you make, for sure, that he already showed so much promise that these companies were interested in him before the, the, the Goodman connection. Well, you think about who Dean was rubbing elbows with even then. I mean, he's playing in a pit orchestra with famous composers. In the pit orchestra with him are Miller and Dorsey and Red Nichols and all of these folks who were by that time in New York, pretty well-known, pretty highly respected musicians. Yeah. And there's Gene. So, you know, he was up there with the A-team right off the bat. Yeah. At least the white a But he also loved to hang with players. He didn't give a damn whether they were orange or purple yeah. because his love music. So I, I believe these businessmen saw that and, and made wise, good use of it and mm. became of course, good friends too. Sure. Uh, so then I also think that yes, Gene made those companies a great deal of money, but like everything else, you knew that was eventually going to have to evolve into something else. So, you know, yeah. I think another interesting story about Slingerland, and maybe you can confirm whether this is true or not, but this is something I've heard and read about, is that Buddy Rich, you know, who was a few years behind Gene in his uh, uh, career development, he was a few years younger, uh, played like so many others, went to Slingerland, played Slingerland uh, because of Gene or because of the popularity of the brand. And then when he became famous in his own right, he left Slingerland because he realized they were they were not ever going to put him on the cover uh, the way that because Gene was always on the cover of the catalog. I mean, it's amazing for thirty straight years he was always on the cover, even if there were other things on the cover. At least the ones I've seen. Yeah, that's that's quite true. He was on the the, the what I call the thirty six thirty seven catalog because it actually didn't come out until the very end of thirty six. Uh, he was on that one and everyone all the way up until. Uh, his first retirement in 67. And the interesting thing is I also came to realize that the cover photo on that last catalog is 10 years older than the catalog. Right. When you think about what Gene looked like by 1967, yeah, somebody, he... made the, somebody decided to put an earlier photograph of him on there. Well, that that's... And, uh... That's old news in in the in the game of promotion and entertainment world, you know. <laughs> Billy, <laughs> some of us can't pull that off, but yeah, <laughs> You're right, right, exactly. Interesting. I'd love to. Be, I'd love to be using ten year old PR pictures for myself, boy, but mm, can't get away with that. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I, I think it's just so fascinating. One of the points I always try to make about Gene is that he really was the most popular drummer in the world from the mid thirties until Ringo, really. I mean, there, you know, other drummers certainly had more technical ability and 
the times moved forward and new styles came on the scene. But you just, in terms of the most recognizable and popular drummer, it continued to be Krupa. Again, maybe you have other information, but to me, it's it from the catalog presentations and everything else. It really was not until Ringo that the baton sort of passed as far as, you know, who people would say is the world's greatest drummer. Well, it's an interesting point. I, to be honest, I've never really thought of it in those terms. Mm-hmm. I do think that uh, there's certainly a lot of, there's a lot of credence to that idea simply because Ringo was all of a sudden thrust into a group that became just unbelievably popular. But I don't know that Ringo was necessarily popular because of the way he played. He was popular because he was a Beatle. Sure. Gene, on the other, popular because of what he did. You know, and I have the utmost respect for Ringo's playing. Even in spite of what Lennon said, I don't think there was a better drummer for that band. Period. Yeah. You know, but the same token, it was a collective thing. So not to take anything away from Ringo. Yeah. But I, 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 I think that the fact that for 30 years he stood out so much, you know, that all of my grandmother's friends, the first thing that comes to mind is Gene Krupa, you know, right. uh, that that that's I guess the the point that it that 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 is impressed upon me not, not realizing just you know trying to understand the magnitude of his popularity I suppose with the general sure. public sure. yeah he was uh, a household name yeah he worldwide really, too really my was. dear friend Jerry Brennan who lives over in the UK mm-hmm. tells story story after story about people who come into his what he refers to as his lounge we would call it the living room or the office and sees this just monumental Krupa collection displayed. Mm. Unbelievable stuff. And the first thing they do is, ah, yes, Gene Krupa. They all knew him. Mm. They yeah. knew it. So, yeah, I mean, just international reputation. Yeah. So I couldn't agree more. I mean, he, he put drums on the map and, you know, became, as I say, he became synonymous with the instrument he played. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Let's let's talk about the book itself. Um, how how is it organized? You've you've shared a little bit about it. Um, tell tell us some more about what it's 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 not done yet, right? It's you said it's going to be out next year. I'm still writing. I'm still finding stuff out almost on a weekly basis. So no, it's not done yet. Plus, I've got all the all the horrific stuff to do without chasing down photocopy rights and all of that junk. Um, do you, but, do you have a title, uh, a working title? Yeah, it's just called GK. Cool. Simple. And that's, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's that's the other icon that is basically owned by Gene. Yeah. Interestingly enough, done with a collaboration with Bill Mather. Ah. That very first, very first shield that had GK in it was actually physically painted by Bill Mather on, on Gene's bass drum head. So, so just um, just for clarification purposes, Gene really was the first drummer to use the initials and the shield, which is so iconic. Drummers still use it today, all the time. Um, that that I is, have seen nothing in my research has indicated anything to the contrary. Wow, amazing! That's plenty of artwork, plenty of front bass drum head artwork, but nothing like that shield. Sure. And the the discussion that went on between Gene and Mather. And this is all based on Russ Connor's very accurate writing. Uh-huh. He was there. 
um, was that there were a couple of different options floated. Gene turned them down because they didn't seem right. Uh, the idea of putting his initials on the front head and having them bigger than the band leader's initials, that Gene didn't like that. He was very uncomfortable with that. What they ultimately came up with was what you see on the first Goodman drum set, one of which, of course, still exists today. Or at and least the bass drum. What is it uh, that What is it that you see? Do you also see Benny Goodman's initials on that, or Krupa's? You, you, certain, you certainly do. You see GK in the shield yeah. of a certain let size, and then you see a BG that is three times bigger. Hmm. That had to be the way it had to go, because Gene didn't feel right about you know overshadowing the guy who was the band leader. Yeah, understandably and the, so. And, and, and on the small, sorry, the same, but you trio and quartet painted on there. But yeah. you know, pretty much the same basic motif. Yeah, small and shield, of, big. And of course, that became uh, the the standard for all the big bands of that period. You know, you, you'd have uh, the, yeah. the, whatever variations well, there were. You, you usually would have the drummer's initials, and then maybe the name of the band or the the band leader's initials or whatever. Well, if you if you notice the comparisons between Gene and Buddy, when Buddy started with Shaw, then it, it was it was going to be a white green pearl Radio King set, same sizes except only one floor tom, and the front head was going to look the same. Going to have B B R and A S. He carried that tradition on with, of course, Torsi added the second floor tom. Everything else was virtually identical yeah. to the way Gene did it, all the way down to the custom-made box throne. Yeah. I believe that was actually more Dorsey's pressure than Buddy's preference. <laughs> hmm. But, again, yeah, that's just an opinion. That's and all. one question about those box thrones, because I've seen those uh, certainly with uh, in, a, in a photo of Buddy with Tommy Dorsey. Uh, for those, again, who are not as familiar as Brooks and I with sort of the whole world of, of vintage gear, you know, the idea of a adjustable drum throne was very rare uh, back in the, the time of the swing era. And, and it was not common for every drummer to use an adjustable stool, I think, until probably the 1960s um, or at least the 1950s. Um, well, but, they did start appearing in the catalogs actually as early as the late 40s. Uh-huh. Um, but as you say, drummers are going to stick to what they're used to. Yeah, young but, drummers, ones that are going to buy the new adjustable seat. So, but but tell us a little bit about what the what the box throne was, because I mean, we could spend all day talking about gear, which which <laughs> I'd love to. But t- th- that's an interesting uh, kind of a thing because I noticed the one that Buddy has. There's there's a similar um, to the to the hoop inlay. You know, there's a similar white marine pearl going around uh, covering on this uh, on this box so that it, it matches the rest of the kit. Am I correct right. in thinking that? I think I saw that in the photo. That's correct. I can, I can tell you specifically the lineage of his box thrones, of course, started with him and a cushion sitting on his trap case like most other drummers do and did. The, the height of the trap case on end is exactly 24 inches, which is pretty much what you'll find with most canister thrones. They're 24 inches high. Right. Same thing with the throne. It started out as a custom-made seat for Hollywood Hotel. Oh, sure. It was done done at the behest director 
because he didn't like the idea that Gene was sitting on his trap case. Who knows why not? But a custom-made box throne with a tacked-on cushion, rectangular, was made for Gene for that film. Painted his initials on the back side of it. Okay, that ultimately became either that same one covered in white green pearl, or it was a different one. I believe it was a different one. And huh. the cushion got, and the tack job got much cleaner and much nicer. And that became the iconic drum throne for Gene until he stopped using it in 1946. At that point, he went to the white green pearl covered canister throne, which I believe was a direct result of that box throne. So, was the box buddy. like like I mean canister thrones uh, again for those who don't know are sort of barrel shaped and often they were sort of uh, dual purpose the idea was you could put your hardware in the you could open the top of the canister throne or separate it in the middle and put the hardware in and, and use it also as a carrying case were the box thrones designed like that or was it just the same shape as the uh, the trap case and so that's why they 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 went with that what what do you think on that I. I believe it was only the because of the shape. Mm-hmm. If you look at a pic of the Carnegie Hall concert, so 1937, you will see, this is post-Hollywood Hotel, you will see two sets of drums, the full band set in the back, and the small group set out front. On those two sets, you will see that he's still using the trap case with a cushion on the small group set. What you will also see is the black box drone and right next to it being used as a table was the trap case for that set. Mm. So, and that was because they were not closed off on the bottom. Uh, even the later Slingerland canister thrones were open on the bottom. Interesting. And the reason for that was because it would be more stable than having a flat plate that you may be putting on a non-flat surface, and then it's just going to wobble all over the place. Right. So, but the jeans box thrones were open on the bottom and were not used for anything other than for him to sit on. Now, let me ask you. Sorry, go uh, ahead. Well, finish up on. Buddy's thrones were a little bit different. His first white green pearl throne, like, however, Buddy continued to use a box throne even after Gene had stopped. And there are shots of uh, Buddy in the late 40s but he's not using the same one. I can probably guess that that one did function as a trap case, just by the way it's built. There was said to be a, a box throne that was alleged to belong to Gene. It didn't. It wasn't one of Gene's. I believe it was actually one of Buddy's. Unfortunately, it was sold as one of Gene's, and who knows what that sucker paid for it, but it it weren't what it was supposed to be. Right, But I right. think that it did function as a trap case. Let, let me ask you this, and one more question about the box thrones. Uh, were those ever sold commercially? Because I don't recall seeing them in catalogs, but that doesn't mean that they weren't there. No, they were never they were never cataloged, they were never listed, and I don't think you'd find any other drummer other than Buddy using one. So interesting uh, to know. me. Because you would think with Gene, both Gene and Buddy using them, uh, and the combined popularity of the two, that they would want to turn that into uh, something they could sell, unless they were too expensive to manufacture, but that they were missing out on a sale where drummers would just 
most drummers then just sat on their drum trap case. You know, it's a, it's a fascinating. Uh, yeah, I think point. I think that's exactly it. It was a matter of economics and convenience. Yeah. You know, if sitting on the trap case or on a chair works okay, why fix it? You know. Right, and people uh, just maybe weren't even thinking of the fact that hey, we could create a, a whole industry or a whole uh, new income stream out of creating something specifically for drummers to sit on that would be adjustable. And again, I, maybe the cost I, of the metal involved was was too expensive to do that. Uh, well, there was there was virtually no metal. Yeah, there, it was all, it was all wood. The only metal were the tacks that held on the cushion. Um. And I actually researched this the other day. I was quite surprised to see that vinyl had been around since pre-World War One. Wow. So, yeah, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Uh, and, and different variations on that. So it's quite possible that the original cushions on those drones was also vinyl, not leather. Who knows? Interesting. Um, interesting. Just yeah. a, a minute detail. But I, <laughs> I, I do believe part of it was the visual thing. You couldn't sure. see what Gene was sitting on most of the time. Right. So maybe they decided it wasn't cost-effective to build something that nobody even knew about. I don't know. Good yeah. question. Who knows? It could just be the, 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 the mind frame of the time. You know, today we would never think of, a, of, of buying a drum set without a quote-unquote throne. But obviously right. in these earlier years, maybe that just you just sat on whatever you could find or something that was 24 inches tall and didn't worry about it, you know. But it right. seems like exactly. it would be, you know, I think one of the points I like to point out is that you know, when you consider uh, the the primitive conditions, and of course, early hardware, as we all know, is is much more difficult to negotiate. You know, as John Aldred said, we're living in a golden age of drum making and hardware today. Um, I, I, it always impresses me more greatly as far as how how good these these early drummers were because of what they were able to do on gear that's much more difficult to negotiate. And I always use the analogy of a, a vintage car. You know, when you when you drive an older car, you don't have air conditioning, you don't have cruise control, it's you don't have power steering, it's harder to turn the wheel and navigate the thing. Um, so it's, you know, you wouldn't be able to do the same kinds of things in an older car that you can do in a newer car. But at the same time, there's a certain cool factor to it and there's a certain cachet you have and a certain sound and style, obviously, that you get when you play the vintage gear and obviously that still has appeal for people today and there's still a market for it. But I, I'm I always, so. yeah, I'm always impressed that how adept these guys were on these drums that are so difficult to play and that it's difficult right. for us to compare, you know, uh, older drummers and newer drummers simply because, you know, what the guys were exposed to at the time, what they were looking at, for their own influences, uh, and and the gear they're playing on was just a totally different animal. Well, I don't know that that I would not say personally that it was they were so difficult to play. I mean, they had no frame of reference other than what was there. True, and I I believe that many of the innovations, and this includes the things that Gene contributed to, many of those innovations were because of things that they saw room for improvement. Sure, uh, the the retention tube lug drums, of course, Gene's idea being one of them. I also think that a lot of guys prefer to stick to what they're used to. Um, I, all I actually use, other than a early 70s Slingerland set, 
is all stuff that was built in the 30s and 40s. And I don't find it hard to play at all, <laughs> you know. But that's just because I'm, uh, that's where I'm based is in that, you know, that mindset. So sure. I think they just, you know, they didn't even think about whether it was hard to play. Obviously, if they had T-rods uh, on the top of the floor, Tom, and they kept clipping their drumstick on them, you know, obviously they had to do something about that. And somebody probably said, why don't you either turn it upside down or put regular tension rods on it? So, you know, sure, I think there were improvements like that. But yeah, they played, they played what they knew. Yeah. Um, great, great points all around. Um, so obviously, just from our conversation today, I'm, I'm sure that our, our listeners can see the depth to which you you uh, your knowledge of the technical uh, the the gear insanity <laughs> the the insanity indeed and and a good kind of insanity if you ask me but the depth to which it goes which is fantastic because I'm really excited for the book to come out and and you know I think I love the idea of um, clarifying things that often just get passed down. Uh, as as conventional wisdom that are incorrect or not well researched, um, and sort of clarifying all of that. So I'm I'm really looking forward to to the book for you know uh, for for all of us because I think those of us that are interested in history and evolution of the drums, it it's about that really trying to get to the heart of things and and you know understand. Why? And we'll never get there, you know, but we can, we can continue to, we'll never totally get there in any case, but we can certainly, we, we can get a, we certainly get a lot closer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you had asked me, you had asked me about how I formatted the book. It's, I tried to make it as simple as possible because it really, my girlfriend Elizabeth refers to it as a very dense book. I'm not sure whether that's just sort of a left-handed slam at me, but <laughs> <laughs> um, the book is a lot of, uh, history in the beginning, which the beginning being about 10 pages. And then the rest of the book is broken down to individual parts of the set, starting with snare drums. So there's a whole section on snare drums, whole section on mounted toms, floor toms, bass drum, and a lot of other peripheral stuff, like the, the evolution of the front bass drum heads that Gene used. Uh, the cymbals. And then the, the book pretty much ends up with a, with a whole section that's just called Where Is It Now? And that's just the coverage of the known group of stuff that still is out there. So, Fantastic. you know, wow. it's kind of, you know, yeah, it gets pretty dense. <laughs> that's, that's great, though, because I think, you know, I, I do think for so many other heroes in other, uh, you know, either other instrumentalists or, or other other folks who had a similar impact as Gene, there has been a lot more uh, serious research done about them, and I'm really happy that that there is something that will be more definitive coming. You know, yeah. uh, in particular, uh, you know, just in in looking at the whole perspective, so that there aren't so many sort of uh, wives' tales floating around, as it, as it were. Um, well, all I need to do now is find somebody who's willing to publish it. Well, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to, it's to kind book. of a hit market, you know. 
<laughs> it's it's like uh, it's like when people you know spend years and they 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 get a record deal. It's like you got a record deal, and now it's like now the real work begins. And I can tell you, it's yeah, uh, it's a long Absolutely. it's a long haul. But I will definitely do everything in my capacity to uh, to to get the word out about it and uh, you know shout it from the rooftops because I think it's uh, it's a it's a I, great I, it's a great yeah. thing. Um, and just a couple other things, Brooks, I think I want to make sure that people know that you are, I mean, you've mentioned it for sure, but that, that you're a working drummer, um, and that also you, you have a presence, uh, particularly on Facebook, uh, where people can learn more about this stuff. They can ask you questions. So maybe you could, uh, share some of the Facebook groups that you're involved with. Uh, in fact, that's how we got connected today. I went and asked a question on the Gene Krupa group (laughs) And suddenly I'm like, why don't you come do the podcast? Uh, well, um, yeah, the, the, the Gene Krupa uh, page that, that was one of the earliest ones was started by a bunch of guys. I think they're in Spain or somewhere. I don't actually know them. That group was number one and the only one for quite a while. And then wisely, Sean Martin finally decided to take his, all of his beautiful work from his website which was indeed the very first internet website about Gene, and transfer that to Facebook. So that's, pre- that's become the predominant Krupa page, which is just called America's Ace Drummer Man. And, you know, so that, that seems to be where most of the traffic goes. Uh, Lawrence Schoenberg set up a page about Dave Tuff, which is great, uh, you know, it's nice that a tenor player would set up a page about a drummer, but okay. Yeah, well, um, Lauren, Lauren's a special case, for sure. I mean, he knows yeah. his drummers. <laughs> That's one way to put it, Daniel. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, uh, several Slingerland pages, the predominant one being Slingerland Sets and Snares page. That was started by a great guy named John Vanover. And, of course, Mark Cooper's marvelous page about Slingerland drums. Uh, so there's a lot of interconnected stuff uh, between, of course, the Krupa focus, the Slingerland focus. I also belong to like a Leedy page, and a, yes, I actually confess I don't belong to any Ludwig pages. Uh, <laughs> well, you, you, so, you choose your sides, I guess. You know. <laughs> yeah, really, exactly. <laughs> Great. So uh, it's you know it's one of those things that everything sort of ties in together. Yeah, I think I think that the a good point just to make is that if if you're listening out there and you want to know more about uh you know whether it's Buddy Rich or Gene Krupa or uh, Joe Jones or Vintage Drums there are a lot of really excellent pages out there or uh, uh you know dedicated to these people with very knowledgeable people behind them and certainly Brooks uh, you're you're involved with a bunch of those and I I find them to be fantastic resources and great uh, points for conversation. Uh, so if you're interested in those, uh, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, uh, those corners of the drumming community uh, on, on Facebook. And uh, just lastly and quickly, um, what, what kind of stuff do you do? You're, you live uh, in the D.C. area, is that, that's correct, Brooks? And what kind of drumming do you do yeah. down there? Just mostly with my jazz trio or my jazz groups. I do the big band does tribute concerts. The next one is not until March of next year. It's a Duke Ellington tribute um, where we'll cover predominantly the history of the early Duke bands, including the small ones, and then make a massive leap in the Ellington legacy and jump up to the Sam Woodyard days. So 
um, but that's pretty much it. And write the book and, uh, you know, once in a while I'll get paid as an actor or a voice actor. And the rest of the time, just, you know, feed mealworms to the birds out here in the front yard. <laughs> and feed, going down the wormholes of Gene Krupa land, which, yeah, we're, which we, we are all benefiting from. And I, I do appreciate yeah, that. Well, Great. Well, Brooks Tegler, it's been wonderful having you on, uh, on the Daniel Glass Show today. Well, I thank you a, lot, a great deal, Daniel, for all your help. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity. And yeah, one of these days we'll wind up on the deck of an aircraft carrier or something. I don't know. <laughs> something. There's a there's a story behind that, people, which I will actually was I put in my intro. So very good. All right, thanks, Brooke. We'll talk to you soon, man. Take care, Daniel. Thanks. All right, so there you have it. Really interesting conversation. I uh, was happy to have Brooks on the program with me. Again, I got a lot of really positive feedback from the John Bonham, last couple of John Bonham episodes. So if you um, have a comment or some feedback on whatever you're hearing, please do not hesitate to reach out and share it with me, uh, be it positive or negative. You could do so via my, via my uh, Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator Facebook page or my website, danielglass.com, or through Drummer's Resource. Uh, and I love to hear from you guys. I would love more comments and suggestions about what you'd like to hear on this uh, program in the future. And so, without further ado, I wish you a fond adieu, and thanks again for listening to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource. <laughs>